Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. Vera, which is Exodus 6, verse 2, through chapter 9, verse 35. Any comments or questions about this Torah portion before I go into my spiel about uh, what I'm going to cover today? Obviously, this covers clearly, as we can see, majority of the plagues, not all of them, of course. There's still a, a few left. I think there's three left over there that we did not cover. That covers the next Torah portion. I'd like to make oh. a comment. Um, By all means, I'm trying to. Okay, I'm trying to relate it to today's pestilence, the COVID, and mankind keeps coming up with different formulas, you know, and different uh, lab companies, but none of them are um, doing it prayerfully that I've been told about. None of them are acknowledging, you know, that it's a divine occurrence. Um, So it's just, we're trying to see a parallel with today's events. You know, it's interesting. It did it, because it, it, it could be. I, 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 I'm not. I'm not an expert. I'm not a, a person who studies uh, diseases or anything about them because it's not not my interest of of, of field of interest. However, um, there are this this these plagues are centered, of course, around the Exodus, the whole leaving out of Egypt, right? And we have the two big events in our in our Bibles about that topic. Obviously, the physical one that most brings the Israelites out. The first Exodus, and of course, the second one, the Messiah is participant of. We'll discuss a little bit about the parallels between some of these plagues and Messiah's time, and what's going on during Messiah's time, and what he does while he's on Earth a little bit. Because um, according to both both uh, stories, both Exodus, Exodus stories, should have a lot of similarities because they were centered around the same topic. As far as today is concerned, um, I don't know. I imagine is my own personal imagination. That I imagine if this, if if God was sitting uh, this epidemic and other things upon us, uh, centered around a uh, connection to or associated with uh, the plagues of Egypt, then sure, you probably see a lot of similarities. Um, if, however, these events going about us are not related to a third Exodus story, I'm not saying they are or aren't, because I don't really know. If they are, if they're not related to a third Exodus story, meaning a third event coming up as a, as, as a third Exodus, so to speak then uh, you won't see very many connections as far as good ones or solid ones. On the other hand, if they are related to a third exodus, and we don't get me wrong, we are anticipating a third exodus that's supposed to occur. The prophets do speak of one, an exodus from the nations to the land of Israel. We, we are expecting a third one to occur, and actually in many ways already is occurring, because obviously Israel is in existence today, and many people have come from different nations to Israel. So exodus has begun in its own form to the land of Israel. Um, we expect that third one to continue to expand. So if this plague or any other plague that comes in the future or has happened in the past was connected to these plagues, or, or sorry, connected to the, the previous two exoduses, exodi, plural of exodus, I'm not sure. <laughs> if it was, if it was uh, connected to the previous two exoduses, I'll use that word, um, then yeah, you see a lot of parallels then. But I don't, like I said, I don't study modern, day uh, uh, events in that capacity, so I don't, I don't know. 
Uh, but some of you may have some insight uh, into, that, into those details. I know there are people who written books about this topic. Uh, I've got one on the shelf over there. It uh, discusses certain, not all, certain modern day events. Modern days mean the modern day of the past 200 years or so. Uh, and how they seem to be connected to biblical events, biblical stories, and repetition, and in the world events, by the by, by the way, not just uh, you know personal United States kind of thing. Anyhow, so if there is a connection to Exodus, Pamela, you will see one, some some form. If this is independent of a third Exodus, then they will these will be a different story God is trying to write. And yeah, in my opinion, again, this is my opinion. I think this pandemic did not go, go unnoticed by our God. I think he probably is has a hand in it to some degree, uh, meaning either it's spread or creation or who knows. There's a lot of theories about that. But since God was in charge of everything on this planet, that even includes the world wars, uh, even Hitler, uh, there's things which he does not lose control of. So I may not like some of the events that happened in the past, but I know that he is in charge of them. So it's a good question. I don't know, again, whether this plague is associated or not, or being this modern-day event is associated with these or not, but it might be. That's speculation, of course, at this point. Now, I think it's pro- good to keep your mind open about it, because these are more than just history, past history. I, I think I they have a value, continuing value, and it's for us to be watchmen. Yep, 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 yeah. I, I, I agree. And on the other hand, we need, really do need to be careful about newspaper eschatology. <laughs> Yeah, um, but no. I, see here, I, I see here that both um, Larry and Shay have their hands up. So Daniel, oh, since you're reading, it's your choice who goes first. No. I, don't, I uh, think first. I'll let. Uh, I, I don't see their hand. I don't, I don't, well, I little, hand. Larry was first. Hand. Larry was oh, first. Oh, okay, Larry, go ahead. Well, yeah, Matthew twenty four talks about uh, uh, pestilence and and um, uh, diseases. Before the tribulation, the, the beginnings of birth things. Right. So I, that's what I hope that this is. If we have to have something, we might as well have something that begins the birth pangs. That's fair. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you about um, another thing. When the reading, uh, Jochebed, the mother of Moses. Yes. I, I, I have heard, and I was trying to find it, and I couldn't find it. Uh, that she was named, uh, there was a person named Jochebed who was one of the 70 that went into Egypt. Uh, um, it's not recorded as, her name's not recorded at that time when they went into Egypt. At that time for Levi, it records his, records his three sons. Uh, I don't recall, I don't think it records the names of any of the women from Levi when they went into Egypt. It does record like a number of people. No, it doesn't from Levi. But she was, I think she was uh, from Judah. No, 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 she, no she, she, she is the sister of Amram's dad. And Amram was Levi, Levi's uh, grandson. So okay. uh, she would be Levi's daughter. Well, I, I heard that she, one of his she was one of the 73. I don't know where, where they and got She that. could have been. I, I don't really know. It doesn't, well, it doesn't be, don't give it an age. She'd be very old. She'd be very, very old. Moses. Right. I'm not inclined to think she was that old at the time. <laughs> My personal opinion, I'm inclined to think she was probably born much later, uh, and most likely she was probably of similar or younger age than Amram himself, because most men don't tend to marry older women. It was supposed to be a 400 years exile. 
she couldn't have yeah. been 400 years old. They were there for 200 years. Yeah, yeah they're in <laughs> Egypt for about 200 years, 210 thereabouts. It, it, people debate, it could be 215. I'm not quite sure the exact timing. But the 400 years... Did Abraham is, say? Yeah, it, it, the 400 years, if you count from the time which God told Abraham is going to happen, then yes, you get 400 years. You see that the, 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 the text in Abraham's story does not actually specify there'll be an age of 400 years, but rather it'll be in 400 years from now, all these things will have occurred. Does that make sense? There not should be necessarily be an age of 400 years. It's just been 40 years from the time which God's speaking to Abraham, 400 years later, they'll be brought out of Egypt. So the, which, that would be inclusive of most, not all, but most of, actually it would be all of Isaac's life because God told him this when Isaac was... Was I even born yet? I don't know if Isaac was born yet. I can't remember. Um, about that time period when Isaac was born. And so it'd be inclusive of the 180 years Isaac was alive is inclusive within inside that 400 year span. Um, it's just, it, it, it's, it, that's, that's, all, that's all the math adds up to being. I think you said one time that, that they were under, um, what's, the, what's the word that they were there under? They were in trouble while they were in Canaan the whole time, too. So the whole Correct. He said that there would be 400 years of, what was it, 400 years uh, in, of? In, 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 there's 400 years in, the, in Canaan and in Egypt as far as being oppressed. Oppressed, oppressed yeah. Oppression. And, and Isaac was oppressed every day of his life, essentially. Uh, from, from Ishmael onward. <laughs> he was oppressed, poor kid. <laughs> yeah. Psychological issues, I'm sure, from that one. Uh, anyway, uh, so yeah, he's oppressed his whole life. So Isaac went through it. Jacob, of course, was oppressed all of his life. And of course, all the sons are and various other things too. So they go through these sequences. So it's the if you add them all up, it's roughly it, it could be a little a hair over four hundred years from the time which God spoke to Abraham, the time which they actually exit or go through the Red Sea, about four hundred years span time. Um, and so so it they don't have to be in each of forty years. It's the whole span is four hundred years, and most people have added up and determined they're in Egypt by just the age of the men listed here in this Torah portion. For about 210 to 215 years, they're actually physically in the land of Egypt during that time period. Um, hence, it makes sense that uh, Amram would be, you know, probably marrying his aunt is not obviously not biologically wise, but <laughs> it's not age wise impractical. Anyhow, uh, so, so uh, Shay, your hand was up, you, you had your hand up earlier. Uh, what was your question? My question is, um, at some point in Scripture, and I think it's in Ezekiel or Jeremiah or somewhere there, talks about us not remembering this, this Exodus anymore, right. the Exodus that we're reading about, and that right. we, we won't even call it to mind. Can you just touch on that a little bit? When is that? Where is that placed right. in the so light of everything? I don't recall which prophet says that. I didn't record it down. I know, I know, I know it does say that, yes, that this, will, this will, will not be the one which we remember. As uh, far as the other one, the one which ex and exits from all the nations of earth is the one that we've spoken about because of its just sheer size, uh, as, well as, as well as the events surrounding those exoduses. There's one thing we're going to talk about a little about the, uh, regarding this topic um, is that there is a consistency uh, within God and how he works with the Israelites throughout history. Um, un- Unlike Abraham, which God said, "Hey, go here, go here," and he voluntarily went. Um, in the case of Abraham's descendants, that's not 
the method by which God seems to move them. If you look through our Tanakhs, you will note that the method which God moves the people of Israel is through forceful means uh, in the form of, hey, here's a massive plague upon you here. Therefore, I will drive you from here to over there. It's kind of like how you would drive cattle. In other way of speaking, not that I'm a cattleman, but as far as you make the place they're, con- they're content at right now, no longer content and they have to move forward. You know, shouting, yelling, screaming, shooting your gun off, whatever it takes. The old guys, used to, old Westerns used to, you know, herd cattle that way. Um, and the Israelites kind of work the same way. Make where they currently live unpleasant and miserable, and then they'll move. As opposed to saying, hey, way over there is a great place. You should go there. They don't seem to move that method. Uh, we, we know that's, that not just in our biblical Tanakh story, we have it in the, in the form of historical examples, too, throughout secular history. That's the, the method which God seems to move all of the Israelites from at different times in history. Whether it's a military force coming in saying, this place is no longer pleasant, I'm going to physically extract you or drive you away. That's his methodology. So, making that, since that seems to be the method which God uses to move his people, it is consistent, though sounds rather unpleasant, um, that the final exodus that is spoken of the prophets, that will exodus to move God's people out of the nations they live in to drive them to Israel will be a somewhat unpleasant experience. Uh, meaning that the, the, the places which they live or where they are scattered will be unpleasant or unpalatable for them to remain and survive. They'll be forced to leave. That's a fairly consistent theme that God uses to move around the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm not saying it's the best, best solution for those individuals to wait for that to happen. So that seems to be the method which God uses. So this third exodus that we're anticipating, this third example, third calling of the people, appears based on the previous uh, few, previous two exoduses, um, is, it is an unpleasant experience. To, to live through and survive. That's pretty consistent. So this third one we're expecting is going to be rather miserable. Uh, and it's going to be miserable enough to where it makes this axis with these plagues forgettable. That's impressive. Because these, that's pretty miserable. They, they, these are the most impressive stories in our Bible is the Exodus story, is the most intriguing of all, the massive plagues. It, it captures your imagination. Well, Apparently, according to prophets, just wait. This is this is nothing. So and I don't know what the next one look like, but and yet it wasn't miserable for God's people in both of the th- previous exoduses. It was yeah, yeah, only exactly. miserable. So, right, it appears miserable. Well, it was for, somewhat miserable because the Israelites experienced some of those plagues. Right. Yeah. They the first the first two they did, but uh, yeah, yeah. So you're right, Tammy. Absolutely. They lived in the area. Generally speaking, we can look forward to being provided for being right. sheltered, um, having, the, having the very clear and definitive leading of no guessing about when the Holy Spirit is moving. I mean, there, there was, it was very uh, clear, clearly defined when the Lord was moving, we would move. So that, that just, just to give us hope that even though there it's is hope, be, right. Yeah. But there's also going to be a lot of misery involved in it because the whole book of Exodus is these people kvetching about how miserable <laughs> they are. <laughs> My life's terrible. That at all. We can't sugarcoat that at all. Right. right. Yeah, so, that's um, right. 
and, 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 and it was miserable in the form of the nation which you live in is experienced great misery. And, and, and not, not to, be, um, uh, to put too fine a point on it, but when Egypt experienced misery, how did they, at least the previous Torah portion, how did they respond to the Israelites? We'll make your life more miserable. Yeah. We're making life more, more awful. They created against them. They, you know, created a system that was totally oppressing them. Mm -hmm. All of that. Yeah. And, and our prophets, I believe is that right? I could be off, but I think it's right. I said so. That the people of Israel, we offered not physically slaughtered, but being offered, being carried over or handed over to uh, the, 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 the nation or the place of Israel as a offering, so to speak, in quotes, to God. As far as like, here is our, the best we have here, you take them. So the nations appear to want to drive out or get rid of these individuals because the nations are experiencing a miserable experience. And so there is some not, you're right, Shane, that there's not a direct like punishing you per se, but there is a, 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 a you're in the environment of misery and everybody around you is miserable and they hate you and blame you for it. You're going to receive some uh, difficulty in that, if nothing else. And so there is going to be some unpleasant to that experience. But you're right. The God, it does provide a way. And uh, I'll be honest with you. I personally don't see one right now in my current life, as far as God providing a way to me to go somewhere as he says go. But when he says go, guess what? I'll go. Assuming he's one speaking and not some crazy crackpot on the side of the street saying the end is near. But <laughs> I can't speak to that. Who knows? Yeah, and I think like what Tammy was saying about, you know, all the kvetching going on. I think what we've got to be doing now is practicing the little goes, you know, practicing not complaining, right? not doubting, not um, fretting or fearing, but trusting. And so that when he says go, we can be like Joshua and Caleb. We go, we've got we just this. Go. God's right. got we this. got this. Yay. We're happy to go. Exactly. I find it interesting in Jewish commentary, they point out that uh, of all the people who left the Exodus, now we're not, by the way, we're not including um, the Levites, mind you, the other tribes, the other, other, other tribes in particular. All the left the Exodus actually went to the Red Sea, only Joshua and Caleb's one actually made it all the way through to the end, as far as they made it through the wilderness and made it to the end. So God's Exodus, use the term in quotes again, of the Israelites, even though they all, with the exception of the tribe of Levi, all of them died in the wilderness, it still saved two people. And that was worth it. It was interesting. I should look at that perspective. Like, hey, like he saved two people. All that That's cool. not very hopeful. <laughs> <laughs> but it, 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 God said it was worth it. I saved two people. That was, that's all I needed. <laughs> I said, okay, that's, yeah, that's uh, interesting. But that was the Jewish commentary about this topic. It's, it's, uh, is it, it's still worth doing in God's viewpoint. If even two people make it, it was worth it. Now, granted, they're, they're like, I'm doing the same thing. They're ignoring the tribal, tribal Levi because Levi in particular, many of them made it through. That's not recorded. We're talking to people who are not part of Levi. And we know Levi made it through because obviously Eleazar, uh, the, the, the son of Aaron, uh, Itamar, they made it through. They didn't die in the wilderness. Phineas didn't die in the wilderness. They, they all made it through and their spouses or however children they had, I, I don't know. They all made it through. So, so there was more than just those two men, but those two men from other tribes that weren't part of Levi they only two made it through, and God said that was worth the exodus. That's yeah, it's not very hopeful per se, but it's helpful to know that even even where there are two people gathered, God says I'll save you, which we know that right. That's a good thing. Anyhow, any comments, questions for this Torah portion so far before I go into my spiel? 
My spiel is going to be fairly, fairly lengthy, but fast talking because I have a lot of plagues to run through here. And I'll, tr I'll try to breathe. Yes, I'll try to breathe between. Yes, ma'am. Any comments or questions so, so far? All right. Let's fly through this. Thing. Oh, I'm sorry. Let's go through this methodically without going too quickly. That's better. Yeah, I know. I understand. We can, it, it is working. All right. Uh, let's uh, go through this a little bit here. Exodus chapter 6, go back a little bit chapter 6. In the beginning of it, it points out when God is continuing speaking to Moses, we left off of this topic, Jeff left off topic, last Torah portion, discussing when God was talking to, to, to Moses, and of course, Moses saying, hey, you didn't work, God. You know, this is miserable. People are just, just as upset as before, because now their life is more miserable, and uh, it, they're not going to tolerate this. But yet, as Jeff pointed out, they endured. The people endured this, and they can endure tough things and keep going. God points out that when, uh, by the way, he tells his answer to Moses, hey, I'm God. Yeah, I'm God. I got this. <laughs> so here, don't, don't knock it. It's really hard, but I got, I'm God. You're forgetting who you're talking to here. I, I, I create all these things. and I did the, the patriarchs. Uh, he points and just reiterates that, of course, he himself was known as El Shaddai to, his, to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but known as Jehovah to, to Moses, revealed at that point to his name or the acronym of his name. Jehovah like, is actually a the first letters of the words, not actually the, the name per se. It's it's like abbreviation. Like I may go by, you know, Daniel is my name, but D R uh, D R A is my initials. It's like these are God's initials. The Yehovah is, is like his initials. Anyhow, uh, so anyway, so that's that, that, that's his initials name that he goes by. Uh, anyway, so uh, he points out that the pages didn't know him by that name. And even though you may read through your Bibles and through your Genesis stories, say, hey, well, you know, Abraham saying Yehovah and all. Yeah, because mind you, Abraham didn't write that story down. He wasn't the writer describing it out. Moses is supposedly, as we as far as we can tell, but who copied the story down. And Moses, having already known God's name, would write the name in the story he's copying down as he's writing it down as far as the scrolls. We also have, of course, a compilation of many scrolls, many different that shoved together to make our Torahs. Uh, they're mostly in order, but there are some errors. But they're minor. But there are some errors on, on the sequence. So you may run across God's name or God's acronym of name earlier in their Torah portion, in the Torah back in Genesis, but that wasn't because the men back then necessarily knew his name at that time. They would have known, called him most likely El Shaddai. But when Moses was writing it down, he would have used God's name when he was copying it down for people to read. So it's nothing too shocking about that. What I want to bring up to your attention, which is the most important part of chapter six, in my opinion, uh, most of my opinion, is uh, the, the verses six, seven, and eight. Uh, chapter six, it points out these are where our four cups of wine come for Passover Seder. The, the promises God gave, the four first promises before we're responsible for something. He says, hey, I will start out and I will, this verse six of chapter six says, I shall, first class, I shall take you for the burden. So we, we, we at the Seder service, we drink a, a sip or in some cases people drink a whole glass of wine. I prefer sips. You can juice what you wish to. It's, I'm, not, I'm not, no judging here. Avoid hard alcohol, so that, that doesn't go well. Anyway, so it's wine, a wine glass or one sip for the first glass, and that's our shit take you out of the burdens of Egyptians. And then we have our second glass, which is a little bit later in the Seder. It's that I will, will rescue you from the slavery. Mind you, these are things that God's doing, not what we are doing. This is this recognition of God's work, not man's work. So God's doing the work. We're the ones, participants, or recipients of, but we're not actually doing anything in these, the, the, uh, these glasses, these cups of wine that we're recognizing God's promises. So uh, promise number three was, 
I shall redeem you with my own arm, and I shall take you as my people, and I shall be your God. So these are the great four glasses we, we recognize during the Passover Seder. It is traditional to do some, of course, to recognize and when you say them, re- recite, hey, you know, this is the, God, the, the promise that God made. But verse 7, there's responsibility. He expects a recipro- reciprocal thing going on here. He does these four things for us, and then we are responsible for the next step. Uh, number seven, it says, you, this is our responsibility, you shall know that I am Jehovah, who takes you out from the burdens of Egyptians. Oh, so God does all these great four things, but then I'm actually expected to recognize and acknowledge him as my God. It's my, it's my responsibility. Shocking of all shocks. He actually wants us to acknowledge and, and accept and res- take response of, hey, this is my God. This is the one who cling on to this particular God that, that he has done these great things for us. And verse seven, once we've completed that, which once we in our personal lives, our personal experience, not only this time Exodus, but even today, we acknowledge this is our God. This is how he's defined himself. This is what he's done for me. This is who I cling on to. Then he says, I, his fifth promise, or fifth and sixth, technically, he says, after you've done that and acknowledged me that I am your God, you've recognized what I've done for you, then I, verse eight, shall bring you to a land that I raised my hand to give the patriarchs, and verse nine, or the, the, the last promise, I shall give it to you as a heritage. So if we as people want the land that God promised with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and to receive his heritage, what must we do? Recognize that he is our God, and he is one who did all these things for us and does them for us. Now, put this in a modern Christian terminology. Um, we, we may, you know, okay, God, you know, he saved me, you know, Jesus died, blah, 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 I don't know the details beyond that, but there's an, ex- there's an expectation on our part to recognize, all right, so he did these things for us. Is now our responsibility, say, to acknowledge, accept, and cling on to that definition of him. And then the promise, the land that he gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, what land is that? In case you're not familiar with that, we call that the promised land. It is rewritten in New Testament form as the kingdom of God. So if you want the kingdom of God, the promise of living there, this is the promise he said, hey, guys. This is the land. You want to live the kingdom of God. You want to live amongst God. Then you are required to acknowledge and accept him as who he is and what he's done. Then he shall give it to you as a gift. Here you go. Cool. Make sense? All right. Uh, Moses had an issue, though. This sounds great, God. However, verse 9, there's always a however. Uh, Moses spoke according to the children of Israel, but they did not heed or believe Moses. Bummer. So I have a question for you. Don't answer this. Just think about it. When Messiah spoke to the people of his day, did they all believe him? Hmm. Some did. What about most of them? Not so many. There are some issues there. He didn't have a great, oh, yay, we all just quickly throw up our hats, say, we're yours, let's move forward. 
Now, some did eventually. It took a little while, but a bit more and more people gathered. But it took time. It took effort. They weren't really too focused about this. Okay, who's this guy? Who's he think he is? What's he claiming? That job? Go away, man. That kind of thing. There was a lot of issues with that as far as the belief in or, or acceptance of God. Except the Messiah, not God. They already knew who God was. Right, except the Messiah of who he said he was. So the belief is not too shocking. And I, I, we have that today that's not too shocking. Oh, you don't believe in God? Yeah, right. And a lot of people don't, actually. They, they do their own thing. Whatever they, not everybody, mind you, but a lot of people, they have their own God they believe in, whether it's God of man or God of some other religion. It's, it's their business. But that issues. so Moses, it records here in verse 9, the reason they didn't believe him was because the work was so hard. Like, hey, you, you, you have these great promises, we'll be saved, these great things going on, but I'm busy with the task I have. I can't be preoccupied with what you're promising when I'm living this and I can't get out of this. This is my burden I'm stuck with. That again makes sense. Again, we also are comparing Moses to Messiah in many ways. So we have Moses and Messiah. And similarly, the Messiah says, hey, uh, take my burden. It's light. Yours is hard. I'll, t- I'll take this for you and follow me. Well, that's hard to do. It's hard to, to remove the life which you've destroyed and built in your own convoluted way and say, I'm going to set it aside and say, okay, what I've worked on for the past 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 years, I worked, struggled to get, and, and even though it's miserable and awful in many ways, it's what I've got, to discard that and say, okay, I'll follow you now. I'll believe you. That's not easy to do. But that's what Messiah was asking, asking many of the people to do. Actually, many of the disciples wound up doing it. Not all, but many of them did too. As far as giving what they've had and move forward. Uh, let's see, let's move forward a little bit on this. So Moses interpreted the problem with them believing him, though he records here as, as a burden, was some issue they had with him as far as his inability to speak. Because in verse uh, uh, 12, Moses appears to explain verse 9 a bit. In verse 12, he claims, uh, Behold, the children of Israel have not listened to me. So how will Pharaoh listen to me? And I have sealed lips. And so in, in this explanation, Moses pointed out, hey, I can't even convince these people that what you're saying is true. And they, and they believe in you. And they don't, they, they don't follow, not make, they're not, not, following not, not, not making sense to them in their, in their own lives. So if I can't convince them with the words I'm saying, how do I convince somebody who doesn't even know who you are? The guy, way guy over there, he doesn't, he doesn't care what you are, who you came from. It doesn't matter to him. How's he going to believe you? If people who already believe in you can't believe me, how's somebody who doesn't believe you going to believe me? And it makes no sense. And Moses, Moses' complaint, he appears to interpret that his inability to explain or people to believe him is a shortcoming on him. That's how he, 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 he appears to interpret verse 9 in his explanation from verse 12. And Messiah said the same thing in a different word form. Ever hear the phrase, uh, a prophet is not accepted in his own country? We're hearing that? The prophet's not accepted in his own land, his own household. Right. They're not. So Moses, among his own people, would not be accepted. At least not through this method. He's going to work for it. And Messiah was not accepted either. They knew him too well. Oh, this is this is old Jesus guy. I know him. Oh, it's Moses. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, I know his brother. Yeah, we, we know that family. It, they dismiss it too quickly. It's very easy to dismiss. So this is not too, too, too off as far as Moses' interpretation. They're not going to accept him. 
it is, in my personal opinion, with my opinion speaking up here, uh, it is plausible. It's possible that Messiah was actually making that reference, a product of his own, in his own place, um, own, the own country, is a reference to both him and his comparison to him with prophets as well as with Moses, as far as being compared. I, we, I've traditionally interpreted Messiah's comparison when you say that phrase to him being compared to other prophets, excluding Moses in my own mind. But I think actually, to be fair, Moses experienced a similar experience. So to be fair, actually, we would to include Moses as well in that uh, that experience. Um, so I mentioned before that there were two primary exoduses, right? There's the one of Moses that we have here at, at the sort of exodus, and of course, the second one with Messiah's day, a different type of exodus, but still type of exodus coming out of the people. So as long as we have um, uh, similarities between these two, we're going to have a, a lot more understanding behind them. So in this instance. Uh, if Messiah is expected or is a type of Moses, in many ways he is, his type is spiritually, spiritually speaking, and in some ways physical, more spiritual though than physical, um, we're going to expect some of the stuff that Moses is about to do to be somehow repeated, not necessarily in the form of like, oh, here's, you know, here's darkness, here's, you know, Messiah not doing the exact same thing, however, not like a physical thing necessarily, but they could be some instances. Um, yeah, thank you, Jeff. The foreshadowing, so to speak. Uh, so you're going to have a, 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 an explanation, example of Moses doing stuff and Messiah doing a somewhat repetition of some of those things in a spiritual format. Though can be physical too. I'm not dis- disagreeing with the physical poss- possibilities. Um, and, th- and the reason I say that is because uh, we have already been explained in our New Testament te- texts that. Uh, Egypt was supposed to be representation or living in Egypt under your burdens of sin or so burdens of Egyptians was supposed to also be representative of burdens of sin, burdens of your transgressions, burdens of your iniquities, things that you've built in your own life and the miseries that you experience. We already know that comparison. That's been ex- explained very thoroughly throughout uh, the New Testament scriptures. Uh, so we have this, this explanation we have here. So we're going to have some commonality between some of the events in Messiah's day and events in Moses' day. Though some of the commonality may be in the form, for example, in Moses' plagues, Egypt was the recipient of all these various plagues. While in Messiah's day, there's kind of a blending of certain people and certain people groups in the form of Messiah himself may experience them on, on himself, some plagues, because it's a spiritual concept he's what he's supposed to represent when he, when he, when he dies. But also the people will experience some of the plague similarities and the leadership of Messiah's day will also experience some plague similarities. It depends on who's being spoken about when. But it takes Messiah's uh, uh, details of, of these actions and such. So let's go through this a little bit. I'm obviously only going to cover some of the plagues, not all of them, because Jeff has covered the rest of them, the, the balance of, of them next week. Well, let's see here. Let's jump down to. I'm going to skip that part. Actually, no, I can't. Hold on. One, one component. Uh, so, uh, God's explanation to, to, to Moses in chapter 7, as far as reassurance, is that, hey, don't worry about it. I got this. You're complaining about Pharaoh not hearing you. Don't worry. Pharaoh's going to be afraid of you. You're going to be a master over him. You're a god to Pharaoh. So 
it typically people, when we worship something, we don't kill it. We don't destroy it. We don't, well, some of us may kill a plant. We like it because we bad black thumb. But the point is things that you like or things you, 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 you desire or lift up, you try to do it best to build it up or protect it. Well, in this case, it comes to gods and idol worship. The Egyptians are really good at protecting their gods, their idols. That's what they did. That's, that's, their, that's their livelihood, their existence, including their Pharaoh himself. Though Pharaoh may be considered, quote, God, in a quote, to Egyptians, as far as God's concerned, in Pharaoh's eyes, God is reassuring Moses, Pharaoh will treat you as his master. He's not going to destroy and kill you off because totally Pharaoh could have just had him run through when Moses first showed up. Now, give me a spear, hurl it through, move on, next guy. He could have done that, but Pharaoh would be too afraid to do that. That's what Moses was concerned about. Hey, he could kill me in a heartbeat. Well, he totally could. But in this case, God's reassured, don't worry about it. I'm going to put the fear of you in Pharaoh. Now, this is an important idea. I'm going to put the fear, because you're going to be his master, in, of you and Pharaoh. Now, he didn't say the word fear, but he's, he's, you're going to be master over him. Now, I use this term importantly, and not, not, by lip, not flippantly. I use the term fear of, because typically you're something who's a master over you. You're concerned they can have control, power, or somehow could do something over you or do something to you. And early on, Pharaoh seems to have this, 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 this built-in uh, 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 reverence to Moses when he first shows up. Now, in my opinion, this is Daniel's opinion, stepping in here again, I'll step out of my opinion in a second. My opinion, I think this is probably somewhat connected, or you could argue is connected to having the fear of the animals put in to them from, uh, about, about Adam. When God first said, hey, the fear of you will be, will be in every, or actually, I think it was to Moses. It was, or Noah, sorry, I think it was Noah. Anyway, the fear of you we put into them. So the fear, the animal is natural fear of man. Most animals do. Some have never met a man. But as far as the natural fear is built in there, I think Pharaoh is being compared, in my opinion, to that. It's possible you could argue that it's like an animalistic type of fear, type of, of, of reverence to Moses. I'm using that not flippantly because uh, Israel represent, or sorry, clean animals represent Israel and unclean represent the rest of the nation. So it's totally possible God's using this as a play on words or play on phrase. That's my opinion. Now I'm going to leave my opinion and move turn to what I was talking before. Okay, so uh, God, God has, uh, so has put in Pharaoh the natural reverence or mastery of Moses over him, so he doesn't worry about Pharaoh killing him. And of course, Pharaoh, Aaron's about to speak, so Moses doesn't worry about his speech impediment or whatever his impediment happens to be. Um, this is a parallel, an important parallel. I don't want to disregard this. is important. That in Messiah's day, what was the leadership's issue? They were too afraid to do anything initially, just like Pharaoh was too afraid to do anything to Moses. So the mastery or the master or godlike power that Moses had over Pharaoh was enough to give Pharaoh fear or enough reverence to avoid causing harm to Moses. The leadership of, of Messiah's day, they could have killed him in a heartbeat, but they were afraid to kill him in a heartbeat. They had a natural fear of the man. He had obviously power they were unfamiliar with. But on top of that, they were going to put the people were going to do. They had the same fear and issue. Now, eventually they lost their fear. And we know Mo Pharaoh also eventually loses his fear because Pharaoh comes to the massive army to kill everybody off. So clearly, eventually the fear wears away. But initially, there's a strong fear, strong concern. So both Moses and Messiah enjoyed the same natural fear God gave, gave them in, in the eyes of others to not want to just kill them through in a heartbeat. Um, and that's, that, that's a blessing. It's a good thing, but it's also it's a parallel between both men. 
that's not uh, not not given up. You can't disregard. And that is not necessarily the case for all the prophets in our Bible. Some of them were killed rather quickly. They didn't have that benefit, that blessing that God gave of a natural fear by the leadership. They just just knocked them out and said, "Move on, next guy," and and kill kill the next person as they, as they saw fit. So there's a natural fear that's good. So Moses was taken care of. So was Messiah in the same way. Uh, let's see here. Now, let's see. I won't discuss that topic yet. We'll go on to the next one. Uh, let's see here. So also some the, the 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 Moses as well as Messiah at some some point in time, Pharaoh and the and and even the leadership in Messiah's day realized when they were losing power, losing control. Um, we debate for us when that is. The book of Acts, of course, records different times which the the people, I mean, the, the leadership in charge of, appeared to be losing their grip. The tighter they grabbed, the tighter they t- held on, the, the more they would lose. And Pharaoh, of course, obviously experienced that as far as losing his grip of power uh, in deal in, 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 in with Moses. Uh, to, in today's, it's hard to say exactly what moment in time. I know Gamaliel's comments from the New Testament kind of indicates there seems to be some realization amongst the leadership. Hey, guys, we're losing this. Uh, you're going to screw up, and we're losing our power, losing our control. It's an indication that, that during that time, um, I'm not sure the exact moment in which they necessarily found or some remarkable event that said, hey, they realized that we have now lost control. Like Pharaoh, he realized he totally lost control, and they said, now we've got to gain it back by going to war and killing. Well, the only event I found in Messiah's day that, that the leadership also makes this realization, I've completely lost control, and, you go, and they go out to kill was the Apostle Paul story. I don't know if the Apostle Paul was acting alone. I mean, I don't know if there's other people like him that was in existence, or he was the only guy who ever did this in, in Messiah's day, or after, after Messiah died. Maybe Apostle Paul had you know, other people working in other districts and other areas and going to travel to other nations and doing the same thing. I can't thing imagine was, that Paul know. was the only one. Uh, yeah, I, I, exactly. I think you're right. That he wasn't the only one persecuting the early Christians. Yeah, so it would make sense that at some point, uh, shortly after Messiah died, I'm not sure shortly, it could be you know, years or some point in time later, the Apostle Paul's day, the people, leadership realized we've lost control. We have to gain control, get these people back under our fold, under our influence. Same as Pharaoh realized, wait, we've lost Israel, get them back under control, under our influence so to, to regain. And so both, again, both similarities, that, that I, my inclination is there's probably more than the Apostle Paul alone doing this because I think they even tried to kill him too, if I recall correctly. Uh, so they, somebody had to go off and try to go do that or try to get rid of him. Uh, so there were people pursuing or, or following, trying to you know, persecute as well. There are probably a lot of people, in, in, in my opinion, again, that, there, that this seems to be the primary event that once Messiah died and the people believed in him, we resurrected, of course, we believed in him, said, okay, uh, we're still following him. The influence the leadership had or the people was starting to d- dwindle and, 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 and diminish. And as we see to where it results in today, if you look at today, how much influence or control does the Jewish leadership today, rabbinical leadership today, have over all of Christianity and all of Judaism sects? Very, very little. <laughs> they have some, but it's very, very little. So they don't have a lot of power or control anymore as they once did. So the desire to gain it was, we'll gain it via force. That backfired, and they wound up losing even more of it. 
So modern day Christianity, modern day most Jewish sects don't use ridicule as its primary control. I'm not saying they don't have some influence and some sects of Christianity or Judaism uh, will listen to more closely than others, but they don't have a dominant control as they once did in Messiah's day, a dominant control. So they lost their authority, just like Pharaoh lost his authority. So I think there's, there's some similarities there. Um, again, I think it's probably the Apostle Paul was the epitome or, or, or a good example, I should say not epitome, but a good example of that reaction of, I've lost the people, they've left me, they're no longer following our instructions, they're following our, our control over them, how do I get them back? Both parties reacted the same way, Pharaoh reacted with force, the leaders of Apostle Paul's day reacted with force, and both fell apart and imploded, so the force didn't work. Um, let's move forward a little bit. Uh, it says, uh, show us a sign, verse 9, uh, a little quicker here, uh, with the whole snake thing. Note that this is interesting. This is, this is not uh, to be neglected, in my opinion, in that it was okay for Moses to show a sign to Pharaoh, who was an unbeliever, but when people asked Messiah, show us a sign, he said, that no sign would be given to this wicked and perverse generation except the sign of Jonah, the three days, three nights, and a whale, or dead for three days and three nights. So in Messiah's day, how come he did not show them some, you know, here's a snake kind of thing or whatever, some party trick sign versus Moses' day? Yeah, okay, show Pharaoh a sign. Okay, what would be the differences? Well, think about who was Messiah talking to and who was Moses talking to? Two different types of people. You see, Messiah's audience wasn't like Pharaoh. Messiah's audience were believers in God. The believers in God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our, of our, of our, of our Tanakh, all the stories, the guy, the guy who did all the stories of Exodus, they did a sign say, hey, is he really a God? No, they know who their God is. That's not a problem. <laughs> the sign doesn't, doesn't, doesn't fix that. Pharaoh's the one who had no clue who this God was. Who's this guy? What'd you call a name? What, 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 what was his name again? Yeah, that kind of thing. He has no clue who he is. So it's, it's reasonable to connect that it was okay for Moses to show a sign because of who he was talking to, a bunch of magicians, necromancers, and Pharaoh who has no, no clue who God is. But in the case of Messiah, no. That is unnecessary step. You've seen the fact we had the reports of people being healed and other things going on. You, this is not a shocking thing. You know he's not preaching against God. He's following the Torah's instructions on as far as how, how to live, how to treat people. This is not a strange person you, you can't recognize. So in Messiah's case, sign unnecessary. In Moses' case, sign was necessary. Uh, let's see here. Because was obviously, they, both of them did multiple signs. Moses, obviously, the 10 plagues, and, Moses, and Messiah did a lot of signs of healing people and such. But as far as party tricks, that was not uh, job, Messiah's job. Moses, however, party tricks were okay. Uh, verse 12, this is a long-term discussion, been around for a couple thousand years now. It'll probably continue on for a couple thousand years unless God just says, dude, this is dumb. This is how you fix it. It's, it's obvious. But until he says so, we are in the conundrum. I'm not quite sure. I have my opinion. You have yours. Um, did the magicians actually create life? Were they successful in taking their sticks and turning them into live snakes? So uh, there are multiple viewpoints on this throughout history of the past 2,000, 3,000 years. Well, we actually only have about 1,500 years of writings, but they've referenced people that were you know, long since dead. So I'm sure they've been around a long time. Anyhow, 
Uh, some people believe that only a fool would argue the magicians actually created life, that only God can create life. Magicians just do sleight of hand. Um, and then and so they're, just, they're just doing, you know, here's a, a party trick kind of thing. Make it look like they're creating life regarding the whole snakes and the stick thing. Um, however, at this time in history, as far as the X is being written down, the sleight of hand would be recorded or written down as a successful creation of something. Because even though it didn't necessarily do it, because it was a sleight of hand, it was still, it appeared that way, therefore, what, what it appears. Because your Bibles, your Torah in particular, is written as what something looks like. What can you see? Not necessarily what it might be behind the scene, not the tricks, not the hidden, hidden scenarios. What does it look like? Because Judaism, if the viewpoint of what is, not what theoretically could be up here in space in your imagination or in, in your spiritual world, what actually is is what matters. What can you see? What can you do? What can you touch? What can you feel? That's what life is. It's that, that feeling, that existence. It's a very physical thing. So uh, when you have the magicians, the sleight of hand would be more than sufficient for people to believe they had some magical power and would give those men an idol-like status. Like the worshiping idols or worshiping magicians, same principle. Um, there is some disagreement on that. And I say this group from both Jewish and Christian commentaries do question whether this was sleight of hand or not. I, it's not many, but some have argued both ways because they're not quite sure. And the, one of the primary reasons in Christian commentaries, why I think it's a sleight of hand, is because the incompetent people couldn't figure out how to bring lice forth from dust. Any magician who's been around for 10 seconds knows how to do that. So if they were so good at sleight of hand and they couldn't figure out how to do that one, they're the most incompetent magicians ever. However, because that would be the easiest thing, dust and little lice are small things. You could actually say, oh, I have dust. And uh, lice, can, you can drop them from your hand in the pile of dust. Hey, look, I created lice. It doesn't take much. Any magician can do that. It's a sleight of hand. That's the easiest one to do. You're just casting dust down and casting lice at the same time. Hey, look, there's dust turned into lice. You can have them both in your hand and throw them on the ground. Look, my dust turned into lice. It takes no effort. But so that's the Don't that's invite that one to your parties. Right. <laughs> that party trick, you might get yourself kicked out of the party. That's true. But <laughs> that's the easy one. <laughs> enemies, an enemy's party. Yeah. You get yourself kicked out. So they couldn't do that one, but they were able to turn the whole you know, frog thing, which is a harder sleight of hand, as well as the, the water and the blood, which is also a harder sleight of hand, and the stick, stick, stick snake thing. So Christian argued, okay, if they could do these other sleight of hands, which actually take a little bit more effort, and the easy one they couldn't do, uh, something's off, something's wrong here. It makes no sense. Uh, so some have argued that uh, they, they, they must have genuinely been trying to turn dust into life somehow, and they believed they could do it, and they were unsuccessful. And they argue, well, if they thought they could, they were unsuccessful. Maybe they actually were successful previously. So they have Christian commentaries who argued both viewpoints. I'm not saying which is right or wrong. I have my opinion. Uh, my opinion, interject here temporarily. Um, Messiah was a very good physician. Was he not? Was there something he couldn't heal? No. Now, we actually have physicians who try to heal today, but for the most part, they dominantly just treat, and they, they hope it heals as time goes on. 
They treat in various ways, some very good treatments, some very poor treatments, but they try their best. They treat. So physicians today still use a type of healing process, but they are treating it in order to heal it. Are they still physicians? Yes, they're still physicians. Are they as good and have the same power that Messiah has physician-wise? No. They aren't as good. No. They don't have the same power. They're doing the best they can because they love God. Same question. Another question. Teachers. Messiah was a very good teacher. As it points out, it says he was a teacher taught with authority. Today, we still have teachers. Are, do they teach the same authority that Messiah had when they teach about God? No. We can't. We don't have that authority. We have the best understanding. We don't, we don't have as much as he did by a long shot. And even in Messiah's day, while he was still alive, other people were able to heal in his name. So they were able to heal people who were you know, demons or whatever, or ailments, in the name of him. So the power to heal, they were now wielding or using the same authority he used and able to heal. And they were able to do so. Were they Messiah? No. So, and we also have, again, in our Tanakhs, written multiple times, prophets. The prophets performed lots of miracles. So they're using the power of God to do miracles. Mind you, that's as far as understanding is. They, you could argue, some, some Judaism uses it instead of the power of God. They claim prophets using actually the angel assigned to that task that the prophet is, 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 is working with. But that's just a Jewish viewpoint. You could argue whether that's right or wrong. I'm not going to dispute that. Both are under God's command. Uh, Tammy has her hand up. Oh, yes. I can't see. How come my flag doesn't show flags of Tans up? I'm not sure why, why it doesn't do that. Go ahead, well, Tammy. What's your comment? Thinking, I was thinking back um, a little bit in terms of the examples of um, with the plagues and all that. Yeah. Is that Yeshua and Moses, their initial miracles, if you will, mm-hmm. were for private audiences. You think of the wedding in Cana. Right, was, the early ones. You know, and you know, some of his very earliest miracles were very much for a private audience. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until much later on when he does the feeding of the 4,000 and these larger miracles where more people can see what's going on. But initially, his miracles were, very, were for private audiences. And so when Moses initially comes to Pharaoh, that was basically for a private audience. That mm-hmm. was before, you know, but then the, the plagues became more public later on and the illustrations <laughs> were more public. But initially they were very subtle and very um, for you know, only certain eyes, you know, mm-hmm. basically those who had the eyes to see or whatever. Mm-hmm. So you see the same thing with Yeshua. They didn't just come out with all the guns blazing, so to speak, and just start in. They right. It's, it's interesting you point that out um, because it, now, people would obviously be the, uh, the fallout of these things would affect many people. Uh, in the case of Messiah, obviously, the subtle miracle in the case of the whole Canaan, the water wine thing. Um, but it affected as, as it expanded. Other people were benefited and received. Like, what is this? So much so that the fame started to spread. It kind of worked its way out, much like the whole blood you know, worked its way out and affected all the people of Egypt. Though Pharaoh saw the initial and his service too. It was their, their private audience. So, so they knew where it came from. Or they saw, you know, rod, you know, hit water, water turned blood. <laughs> they saw the event, but uh, it did eventually spread. So you're right. The, 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 the initial miracles are relatively small, but, but uh, it, the fallout or the effect of them spread to hit everybody over time. Um, it's, it, it, so uh, Shay actually has her hand up as well. Up, Shay, what's your, what's your comment? Sorry, real, just real quick. Um, Satan is said to be able to come at the end of time and perform great signs and right. wonders. And that's how right. he's going to deceive many. So... 
it would seem that these magicians could just call on their god other power right right so that 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 is the the another viewpoint which we're about to cover uh what we do right now so uh, so we have examples of individuals who are believers in god in messiah's day and the prophets and such who have the wielding power of God behind them to do certain things. Now they couldn't just do it whatever they felt like it. They were they had you know certain you know guidance, certain things, tasks they were assigned to do. Um, and we even have Balaam. Remember Balaam? We're going to read about him in, in the Book of Numbers. Uh, he has the power to use God's name to bless or curse. So he's wielding, and he's not even he's a believer in God. Per se. He's not a believer in the Torah, just in God. Uh, it's a, a strange you know character. But so he has a power, though he is a not Israelite, not a follower of the, the 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 instructions of Moses or anything of the Torah at all, as far as what's right or wrong. But yet he has the power to use God in the form of cursing somebody or blessing somebody and make it actually happen. So he is a, a non-believer example of even knows how to use the power of God to bless or to curse somebody for his own personal benefit, of course, not to uh, any righteousness naturally. So and Moses, of course, warns. However, in the book of Deuteronomy. If a prophet shows up and does signs and wonders, great miracles, and does wonderful things, but instructs you to follow a different version or alters the version of God that I'm explaining to you now, don't believe him. The signs and wonders may come true. It's because God's testing you, is what Moses explains to the people of Israel. So, if I put all these things together and throw them back to Egypt, okay, magicians, Let's pretend for a moment they did successfully turn a physical stick and it started to move and became a snake. Let's pretend they did that. I don't know if they did it. Maybe it's not a hand, maybe not a bit. I don't really know. Then the only way that happened in Moses' instruction would be God is saying, I'm going to test you. And the snake becomes real. That would be consistent with who has the power to create life? God. Now, and who does who who doesn't man? So that's one possibility. The other Shea is possibly what she brought up, which a lot of Christian commentaries have argued the same. Is it possible this was just were utilizing some demonic powers to do it? Totally possible. I don't know what powers demons are granted or not granted in regards to creating life or not creating life. I don't really know. I don't really study that stuff. Somebody probably has, and somebody might have a good answer for it, but I don't have one. So it's totally possible demonic demon influence is, but Moses warns, even if it looks like God's doing it, check what the guy is actually saying. What words are coming out of his mouth? Is he saying, hey, we have a new God over here, or hey, we have an altered version of the God you once believed. He now does this instead because God changed his mind. Note, God doesn't change his mind. <laughs> In case you weren't sure of that. He may delay. He doesn't change it. If he says, hey, you're going to die, I may change when it happens, like, okay, next week or, you know, 10 years from now. But the point is, you're, you're, he made the decision. So that's, he doesn't, he doesn't flip around and say, oh, I'll do this today. Oh, it's Tuesday. I'll do that now. It, it doesn't do that. It, it doesn't rot return. He wouldn't be a very good God. A yes, a Jeff. So what you're saying to, uh, with much apologies to the Apostle Paul, is that uh, there are many signs that are permissible, but not all are profitable, meaning they come from a prophet. <laughs> right. Okay, got it. <laughs> got it. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Uh, let's move forward a little bit because I have a lot of plays to go through. Uh, let's see here. Okay, uh, blood water thing. 
Yeah, blood and water. So uh, we know this is not too, too difficult. This is obvious. Our Torah explains to us thoroughly. It's a pretty simple, simple story. Um, we know blood and water have two obvious connections. We have blood, which is supposed to be, the, as, as, as God says the Torah, the life is in the blood. So blood of an animal, blood, blood of, of, of beings makes a difference. And water, we also know the water and the prophets explain that water is representative of spiritual life and gives life to those which are, which are living. So we have the obvious connection of blood and water in the, the, the denial as far as converting the water into blood. This has twofold symbol. Both Messiah runs across this as well as most runs across this is that uh, you have water, which is spiritual life, turned into blood spilled on the ground. It's now turned into blood. And even they had you know, blood vessels, you know, bore, you know, bore literally blood from the ground. And God explains the Torah, blood is on the ground, the ground becomes contaminated, you, you spill blood on the ground, it's now contaminated ground, it will vomit you out. We, he explains that in, in when they're entering Canaan, uh, that, 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 that is symbolism of blood spilled on the ground, in particular innocent blood, which is what God actually focused upon. We will note, recall, as we obviously already read previous Torah portion, the execution or the death of the firstborn of the Jews, the Israelites are firstborn, sorry, of the, the sons, the, all the male babies, who were innocent because babies are innocent by definition. They haven't done anything. And so they themselves were slaughtered unfairly, thrown in the river or, or however means they happen to be killed. So it's a symbol of you've turned this spiritual water, Pharaoh, you turned this into, not you yourself, but your dad did or somebody, your predecessor, turn your water, which is supposed to be spiritual life, into blood by killing babies, uh, we're going to turn your nation, which is spiritually alive, into a dead nation full of blood because you're, we're going to kill you too. Obviously, example there. Messiah ran across this uh, pretty thoroughly too as far as turning death and pouring it out of the, the ground that he himself experienced that, his, his crucifixion. crucifixion uh, as far as when he pierced his side, uh, water, what appeared like water and blood came out, poured out, mixed together. You put, took someone which was spiritually alive, physically alive, and you killed them. But in Messiah's case, you turn someone who is physically alive to dead alive, but a spirit which was also alive gained life or became back to life. It, it's a funny mix of life and death and death and life and spiritual life and spiritual death and, sp- and physical life, all jumbled together in the Nile River and Messiah's death. At the same time, the Nile River story course shows that the fish die in the process of, the, of it turning into, into, uh, into, into blood. The fish, of course, it stank and made it like, gross smelling and such, and I don't know what else it smelled like. And Messiah, of course, is probably the ultimate fisher of men there is, fisherman there is, uh, and the fish is even today, has been for a couple thousand years, associated with Messiah, the symbol of the fish. You see the little fish, the Christian symbol, the little fish, the little squiggly mark thing. It's still associated today with him in many ways. So we have a lot of physical connection uh, and spiritual connection with Messiah and his experience with the whole spiritual death and physical death and blood and water mixed together, and the fish dying, and then him, of course, being back to, back to life again. So that's a pretty obvious uh, a- event that happens in Messiah's day as well. I want to point one thing out to you. It says this affected Egypt. Uh, we do not know if it affected Goshen, the land of Goshen, as far as the Nile River. Somewhere, the magicians got water. I'm guessing they either dug it a well themselves immediately in front of Moses right then and there, or they went and bought water or stole it. Are you from the, from the Israelites? I'm not sure. Somewhere they got water to make their own version of it. Or it was, again, a sleight of hand. Like, oh, yeah, this was water. Okay, wait till Moses is done. You're done? Yeah, now it's blood. See, it's blood. And they could have done that too. <laughs> I'm not going to say how talented they were on their sleight of hand. 
Uh, moving forward, because so so we have both the the experience of Moses and Messiah having similar experiences in the similar form of of, of tools or 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 symbols being re- reused. We would expect that because they have both X's stories combined together, and they're and they're both both time periods two thousand years separated or fifteen hundred years separated. Uh, frogs, uh, some of the frogs, pretty obvious. Frogs are unclean animal uh, in the Torah, of course. I'm sorry, in Egypt's version of of clean or unclean. Uh, but uh, the frogs, of course, is it, the frogs. So as I mentioned before, the slaying of innocent of of the the firstborn contaminates the land, and the frog, the blood, water for water to blood turns the is a symbolism of contamination pouring out the the blood of life on the land. It makes the land unclean. Well, frogs coming forward also makes the land unclean. Uh, Egyptians didn't eat frogs and worship the, they worshipped them per se at that time. Uh, but even 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 today, um, if you the, the similar similar situation occurred Messiah's day, those of you who know your history even a little bit uh, remember that after Messiah died, there was a big event took place not immediately but like a few decades later called um, uh, uh, the destruction of Sack of Jerusalem in 70 AD. It made the territory of Judea and the nation, or sorry, the city of Jerusalem over the next couple hundred years or so, actually a couple tens of years, a couple decades, turn into an utter wasteland. And Jerusalem over time turned into a wasteland. And then for about 1,800 years or so, it was the most miserable place on earth. Wars and awful places, diseases, just out of nothing grew there. It was a terrible place all the way up till, well, about 1800 or so, uh, before things started to, re- started to recover. So the land of Messiah's day from its execution onward became contaminated and a wasteland, which is what we'd expect because you spilled innocent blood and God's going to say about the, the land will spill you out or vomit you out, but you've contaminated the land. So the land became contaminated, thus Jerusalem, Messiah's day, became contaminated for nearly 2,000 years. Not quite, 1,800 years. Close enough, though. So we do have a similar ex- experience as far as that's concerned. And the symbolism of the frogs contaminating the land, and Egypt being contaminated, and of course Israel being contaminated from Messiah's death. So that's not too shocking there or too, 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 uh, too difficult to understand. Um, in the case of lice, enough time here, get there's, or, all right, so far. In the case of lice, uh, this has, we don't have an explanation within our Tanakh of lice. You look for what you want. I, I haven't found it. Oh, lice means this. It doesn't have that. We don't have, like we do for blood, we do for water. We have frogs, for example, have frogs being, being gross or unclean animals. We at least, at least have that. We don't have any good explanation for lice. However, we do have historical history of lice. <laughs> Those of you who have ever read your history on any topic at all, lice was not considered a good thing. Even today, as Jeff was mentioning a few months ago, a party trick you don't want to do. <laughs> lice is not something that's, ooh, yay, let's all have a lice party. It doesn't work that way, right? So, so lice is not a good thing. In fact, historically, lice is considered a plague of poor people. Oh, you get away from that. Let's, let's, let's avoid that gross. I don't want to get there. It's a terrible thing, right? So much so it was even repulsive to even the Nazis from the Nazis, the German camps. They wouldn't go into the, the prisoners' barracks because they were going to get lice. Like, that's disgusting. I'm staying away from those barracks. Let them do what they want to do inside there. I'm, I'm not going there because the guards wouldn't go in. So, lice clearly wasn't. Well, yeah, you know, the, the, the Bible could read the Bibles in there if you wanted to because the, 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 the soldiers wouldn't go in. Lice is obviously an indication of, for I think, I think it's universal of all humanity, 
it's unclean. It's gross. Stay away from them. Don't, don't go near those bugs in your hair or, or, your, or your body parts and your bites and you're going on. So whether or not our Torah explains lice isn't necessarily required since we know historically and humanity-wise, we hate them. <laughs> like fleas, we hate them. <laughs> and mosquitoes that bite you, we hate them. We don't like lice. They're a nuisance and they're symbolic of something that is awful and terrible as far as the miserableness. So I don't have a Torah explanation for it for the lice themselves other than the fact that this is just an, an obvious uh, people don't like them and that therefore God used them. It's a party trick that is not desirable in many ways. Uh, magicians I mentioned before were not able to duplicate this, story, this one even though this is probably the easier one to do. Uh, so again, that was the example why some Jewish and Christian argues maybe it's possible he had some power. I'm not going to go into that topic again. Uh, the next plague we have we, oh, sorry, so don't, 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 don't forget this. Uh, so in the case of Messiah's day, um, we don't have a good explanation form of lice in this fashion. However, however, we do have a different comparison. We have a comparison of his ability to heal leprosy. Because leprosy, people stayed away from lepers much as they did lice. You avoided lice-infested places and people. You avoided leprous-infested places and people. So it is possible that since Messiah went to the lepers, went to and helped, not, not like with a leper colony, but he did as far as lepers came, he would, he would, he would greet them or take care of them. It is possible there could be some association with lice in that, but I don't know for certain. I'm just guessing on that. I don't really know. If you have a good example of Messiah and the, 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 the lice example as far as how it affected either him or affected the leadership of his day or affected a group of people that uh, were considered uh, unclean or disgusting, let me know. I don't have a good understanding of it yet. Maybe one of you do. If you have a card across, you can email, text me, write me. I don't really care. Anybody to let me know because I am curious about the lice, how Messiah's example, because there, there seem to be other examples he does, but the lice, I couldn't find an example of lice in his day as far as what's, what symbolically or spiritually it might mean. Um, in the case of the swarm of either, now people argue whether it's beasts or such or flies or bees, I don't really know. It's a swarm of some, something, something that can swarm. So most likely it's either flies or some wasp or hornet type of thing. It could be some, Judaism chooses to think wild animals. I'm not inclined to think wild animals because wild animals would include like lions, tigers, and bears and such. Oh my. But uh, they don't go under, like on the ground. This is all of the ground. Well, that, that wouldn't make much sense for lions and tigers and bears. Um, but it would make sense for bees or flies because they go all the ground. Uh, so I think it's a, a swarm of some, most likely an insect of some form that was very awful. That is not the only time God's used flies or any other kind of insect like that type of swarming. He could be wasps or hornets. Uh, they, they, they could, this could be something he uses flies and bees or type of insects to cause other things. We know he uses them. He actually warned in the Torah he would be using hornets or swarms of insects flying to drive the Canaanites out of the land. I mentioned earlier to you that God historically uses things that are make, you, make your life unpleasant, for not you personally, but as far as the Israelites unpleasant, make them to want to move from place A to place B, moving along in their lives or where they want to go to. He uses unpleasant things behind you. It's like the, the carrot and the stick phenomenon. He has a carrot, but he also uses the stick to whack the bottom. Come on, keep going forward, keep going forward. He uses both. He doesn't use one or the other. He uses both. So he used flies a few times. 
He did obviously Canaanites as far as uh, what, what he did as far as making their life unpleasant. They would drive them out using flies or hornets. You could argue, I'm not sure whether it's a fly or hornet, but it's a swarming thing. He also used them historically to drive the Israelites out of Parthia as well as the Roman soldiers out of Parthia uh, later on. He did a massive swarm of flies and insects infecting and attack a, 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 a Roman, uh, 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 what do you the group of Roman soldiers, there's a name for it, like a legion, but there's a name for it. Anyway, a whole massive army group attacked with flies. And the Roman soldiers couldn't handle it. What was that? Garrison? Yeah, Garrison. Thank you. That's the word. Uh, it, 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 it consisted of, I think they said uh, like 18,000 soldiers. Um, they were attacked with, with flies. Flies just swarm and attack and they had to run. Um, and it actually says flies. Uh, so you think, okay, maybe they're horse flies because they hurt. <laughs> it makes them miserable. And they couldn't keep fighting. They had to run away. And so um, Clearly, that is not something that is necessarily done by you know man. Hey, let's release a bunch of flies and make them run away. That's like a god type of power. <laughs> so, uh, it, it historically wrote down, and the Romans were quite frustrated with it because they 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 thought for sure they had the Parthians that didn't. But uh, anyhow, the flies the flies invaded and scared the Romans away. So they had a, a problem. So God uses them uh, apparently to have a very strong power, strong influence, in making people do things they don't want us to do. Um, in my opinion, these are God's tools, not man's tools. Therefore, these are God's power to do so. Uh, like I mentioned before, he drives people around using tools, both the star- carrot and the stick. And this appears to be more of the stick form rather than the carrot form. But I will not put it past him to use anything to do that. So the case of Messiah's day, uh, as far as the, the, the swarms and such and, and, and drive people around, uh, in Messiah's day, it's a little bit different. Uh, I don't, we don't have a swarm, per se, of driving people around, but we do have a type of swarm uh, in Messiah's day. Not the form of insects, but we have a swarm of people leaving. Uh, you will note, historically speaking, Messiah even warned in the gospel, saying, um, when you have an army surrounding you, Flee, run away, get out of there, leave Jerusalem, don't go back, don't grab your stuff, run. And so he still uses those. And even today, we, 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 I have not experienced it myself, but I have heard that armies still have that ability to make people flee like that. Some are more pleasant than others. But uh, in, in, in throughout the, the, the Bible, we have armies that, if you ever see the, those, those, those Hollywood films, I've never seen, my, seen you know, in reality, but as far as Hollywood films, when they have like, a gazillion soldiers out there and they cover the land. I'm sure it's like computerized. They're like here's 10, we'll just duplicate, pop. I, I'm not sure they actually do it, but I, I'm, I'm not a computer person in that way. Um, but however they do it, uh, you, can, you can make it look like soldiers are just swimming across land and make it look really like intimidating. And it would look like a swarm as far as how it infects and how it takes over. Even ants can do that too. I have seen pictures of those. Ants can do pretty, pretty massive damage in particular so army, army ants. Yeah, that's right. Crabs, crabs can do that too. You're right in the ocean. They have that. They have that power. So those swarms can do a lot of things, and they will drive you away and move you about, whether you want to go or don't want to go, and toward another place or away from a place. So in Messiah's day, he warned, "Hey, guess what, guys? Get out. There's going to be a massive invasion, and there is. Both Vespasian and his son Titus." wind up taking Jerusalem, but they take it, the whole nation is covered with Roman soldiers. They have to flee and run because they've taken it over. Um, and, and, they, and like a locust, which is probably indicative of one of the other plagues, 
they suck up every edible thing you can find. There's you, you, you can't like, you know, we'll just hang out in the city for a couple of decades or however long it takes. I'll just get out and when they leave and I'll get food. There is no food. Like a locust, there's nothing left. So it swarms. There could be some similarities to that because uh, Messiah did warn, hey, this is going to make your life miserable. Get out, get out now, get out as you can. And he warned about that type of issue. Yeah, a lot, yeah exactly. Because of all the revolts that Israel or Judea, Judea was known for. Uh, next was epidemic on livestock. Uh, we have uh, this, this, this as far as the, the uh, killing the, the Egyptians' uh, animals. Egypt was known for animal worship. Now, this epidemic of livestock, my daily's opinion, I'm going to interject here again. Uh, I think Pharaoh asked for this one. Uh, it, you will note that in the, in, the, in the swarm thing, he said, hey, just sacrifice in the land. And Moses' reply was, you can't because you guys worship these animals. And I think that was God saying, oh, hey, yeah, I'll, I'll kill those too. <laughs> it was a very convenient lead in from, hey, just kill the animals in the land. Moses, but you worship these. And God says, yeah, let's kill them too. You offered, right? Kill them in the land. Sure, I'll kill them in the land. Here, they're all dead. <laughs> I think I think Pharaoh's kind of bled and walked right into that one. It was, so, it was too easy of emotions. God said, you want to offer them land? Sure, we'll offer them land. Look, they're all offered in the form of a dead, dead disease. That's my opinion. I think, I think Pharaoh just opened the door and just stuck his foot in his mouth the whole time and just kind of, you know, whoops, should have got my mouth shut, have been happier. So, uh, in the form of, in a matter of speaking, <laughs> in a matter of speaking, uh, to, so the, Pharaoh got his way in this one in that the livestock was offered in the land of Egypt, but it wasn't in the form he was hoping for. So, uh, yeah, anyway, that's my opinion. Let's go back to what we were talking before, though. Uh, in the case of, uh, uh, the animals, which Moses points out, this is these animals being offered and being worshipped. These are these are a, 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 an abomination or, or, or a, an evil thing or corrupt thing that Egypt does. So Egypt was worshiping or honoring these things. Uh, as far as sacrifices would be used, they wouldn't be using for that purpose. They use it for like bowing down or or doing. Oh, well, they do. I, I, I don't. I don't study Egyptian religion uh, at all. But anyhow, so. Pharaoh thought he could fix this nuisance of Moses by saying, we'll just off them here. And spiritually speaking, uh, we have a, a somewhat similar situation. I think this is interesting. Now, I may be reaching here, but you can argue if I'm right or wrong. It's your decision. Um, you know, when Messiah died, one of the major events that stopped in those who believed in him was the offering of sacrifices for sins. Now, people still had you know, celebration offerings, but the sacrifices for sins was one of the big things that kind of died off with him. So, in a matter of speaking, the offering of these livestock that most of hey, we had to go off these up to, the, to, our, to our, our God. Okay, he's doing it in celebration form, but they have sin offerings too at, the, at, at Mount Sinai. Uh, so, or, yeah, the Mount, Mount Horeb. It's Sinai and Horeb. I think the same, 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 same mountain, two different names. Anyway, uh, so they have these offerings in the form of celebration as well as for sacrifices for, for sins. And if I was speaking, Messiah's death kind of removed a chunk of those animal offering options as far as the sin offering. He, he removed that section. And also, manner of speaking, Egypt, that option of all just offering him was also removed. Now, I could argue, you could argue I'm reaching those, those two connections, but to me, it kind of makes a little bit of sense uh, because the Israelites didn't lose any animals. 
They didn't lose their ability to both spiritually celebrate or offer uh, sin, per se, a sin offerings in Moses' day. Just like in Messiah's time, the removal of the sin offerings didn't technically affect anybody who believed in him. It didn't remove their sin offering. It removed only the sin offerings of those who, who didn't believe in God. So it's, it's a funny thing, but in a manner of speaking, removal of the animals of Messiah's day of the sin offerings, it really only affected the Jews who didn't believe in Messiah because they could no longer offer a sin offering for their sins. But those who believed in Messiah, their sin offering is still being paid for. It's already done. It didn't remove it from them. So it's quite interesting that both the Israelites and, and, and Egyptians they had a similar situation where Egypt lost its power to all its strength in, its, in the form of, of animals that they would offer for sins or, or whatever they would offer for, I don't really know. And Israelites didn't lose any of the animals. Well, so they, they were preserved. Their, their, their wealth, their, their ability, their, their salvation, so to speak, was still there. They still had it. In the case of Messiah's day, his death, when he died away, died off, the sin offerings for animal sacrifices died with him. Well, those who don't believe in Messiah, what do they have left? Nothing. It's taken away. They're, they're, they're destitute when it comes to sin offerings. So they can't offer sin anymore. The temple's gone. There's, there's nothing there. What are they supposed to do? Well, other than now, they, they try to do more good than bad. That's all they have left. They have nothing else to do. But however, in Messiah's day, those who believed in Messiah, the removal of the sin offerings didn't affect them. They still had their sin offering, even though the removal, even though it was taken away. So spiritually speaking, it actually has a lot of similarities between the two. Now you can argue I'm reaching, but that's just my opinion, how I view it. So uh, I think it's interesting that the, the freedom was still there, even though the offerings were, were lost in Messiah's day. And it, I, th- I think it's a, it's a funny, haha type of ironic thing, in my opinion, as far as how the process worked. But that's just how, my, I, that's how I'm viewing it. If you have a better viewpoint or different viewpoint of how those, those two are connected, let me know. But that's how I see it that as far as the animals dying off and, uh, and, and affecting Egypt, but not necessarily affecting Israel. We have what? Two more plays to go through or one? I have uh, two more plays to go through. I have five minutes. So let's see here. Uh, boils. Okay, boils are obvious. They're unclean. Uh, we know the story of boils with Job. That's pretty dead obvious similar similar scenario uh job with his boils he had to sit in ashes oh sorry which is jerry uh, larry says i'm thinking of the swarms of fishes the messiah perhaps conjured up to fill it. that's possible too swarms of fishes that's possible he did do swarms of fish the 150 fish thing it was he or something like that of the fish he had thrown into a net that was too big for them that's true he may there may be a swarm of that connected there as well i don't know that's an interesting point um so back to the boils issue boils are obvious job explains the boils to us it's in the book of job if you're not sure about the book of Job, read it. It's pretty, it's pretty hard. But the whole point of the book of Job uh, is what was, it, what was Job doing? He was humbling himself. He was up here, boils, ashes, on sitting on the ground. You're now down here. All right? Job brought himself down very, very low. Boils are a humbling experience. And the Torah, in the, we, we obviously have it. It's told to us explicitly in our Torah portion right here that the boils made the magicians humble themselves, the form that they couldn't stand for Moses. So boils are a humbling experience. If you ever had a boil, I've had one, it's awful. Uh, it, it's a pretty awful, miserable experience to have. I only had one. I had to have a whole bunch of them on my body. I, I, I'd go crazy. Um, anyway, but Job had all over his body. 
it brought him down very, very low, the bottom end of which just, just a hair above death. Um, in the case of the necromancers or magicians, they had the same issue. The boils that couldn't save from Moses brought them very, very, very low in their own eyes. And Messiah's Day, we had the exact same thing. It is a spiritually humbling experience standing before someone. And Messiah's Day, you do not follow Messiah unless you are a humbled person. Your strength did not succeed. You failed. You fell apart. Just like Job's strength did not succeed, and his requirement of everybody, Israelite, Jewish, Christian, Gentile, before your God, before your Messiah, you will humble yourself down low. Um, and Levites obviously explain the Torah portion, not now, but later on, about uh, the process of it is an unclean, you are an unclean person with boils, uh, you are isolated and humbled. So boiling is a humble experience, humbling oneself down before Moses or before Messiah, you are humbled. Uh, let's see here. And then we switch from these nuisance stories, these nuisance party tricks of plagues to, as, as, as God points out, I'm not going to read through all of it again, verses 6, 14 and 16 through chapter 9. But uh, now we're going to start do the big stuff now. Now we're playing with, 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 with mean stuff. So we're, we're done with the party tricks. Now it's time for serious business uh, with Pharaoh. Uh, as God points out in verse 17, Pharaoh was trampling on God's people, and therefore God will trample on Pharaoh's land. And the first word of trampling obviously is the hail and fire. The hail and fire is a big boy toy. It's not, 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 not small party tricks. I'm not doing wrong. <laughs> I can't do the party tricks either. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm not pretending that they are insignificant. Sorry. These are just the bigger ones that God says, now I'm going to stretch your heart, what's inside of you, and the core of your strength and your identity. Um, the, 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 these are the big boy toys. There's only one boy because one of them. It's God. <laughs> but anyway, the point is, they're his toys. But this is where he gets the harder stuff. They pull out the, big, the bigger guns, so to speak. Uh, he will trample on Pharaoh's land. The hail and fire is how he did it. The first, the first step of, of, of the trampling process. Uh, crushed man, beasts, fields, trees, crops, anything that was around. Um, now, uh, we, uh, we do have a, a, a type of trampling, so to speak, as I mentioned before, with the swarms as far as possibility connected to the, the, the Roman soldiers, actually, actually were Syrian soldiers under, under Roman command, but still, they were still under Roman command who trampled uh, Judah and Jerusalem. Uh, these destroyed the strength of Judah uh, at the time of Messiah's day in 70 AD. Uh, Judah and Jerusalem being taken it wiped them, their power, to the ground. They were very, very heavily humbled. Uh, we also have the hail and fire example as far as hail being brought down. We have a similar situation, of course, in Canaan with Joshua. When Joshua tried to conquer Canaan, hail came down from the sky and killed more soldiers than the actual Israelites did when they were trying to kill their enemies off. Um, they also had, of course, we know the famous story of Sodom and Gomorrah, which destroyed both not only the, 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 the land, but of course, obviously also the people themselves. Um, however, this is important to note that, uh, the, as it says here, the people in Pharaoh's entourage who believed Moses and feared the Lord, they brought their animals and, and, and their servants in. They hid them or concealed them, protected them. Those who didn't had them lose. So, a, a, even the non-believers would still say, okay, well, this is a risky thing. I'm going to try to fix this. 
Well, in the same situation as mentioned before, Messiah said, that is exactly what happened. Um, in that those who said, wait a minute, I see Roman soldiers coming in 66, 67, 67 AD, three years before Jerusalem falls, soldiers come and the believers saw when soldiers temporarily left, which they did for like a year or six months, the believers fled. They fled. They took off. They left Judea. They went, they had hightailed the east to Damascus and further on. They weren't going to stick around. They had their warning and they fled. They heard, they saw, they got the info, they took off. They did, they believed, they followed suit. Much like the Pharaoh's servants, when those who believed, they believed, they took off, they followed suit, they, they got the message. And also with Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot and his family got the message. They didn't all believe, and some of his daughters didn't believe, some of his laws didn't believe, but they got the message and they fled. So in the case of the hail, we even have the examples of, hey, when you see this stuff happening, when you see a warning, flee. Flee like you're supposed to flee. Don't stick it out and say, I'm tough, I can handle it. No, you can't. You can't handle it. No one stands before our God. He stands alone. So you don't stand before him and say, I'm tough, I can, I, can, I can take it. No, you can't. You can't take it. You've been warned not to take it. Don't take it. Flee like you're supposed to flee. So the people fled both in Messiah's day, actually after his death, as well as uh, in, in the case of even Pharaoh's time. So we see at least a few, there may be more, duplications, we conclude with this, duplications uh, in Messiah's day and Moses' time of some of the plagues. Not all of them, not, we're not talking like verbatim, letter for letter, but there's certain duplications, certain repetitions in the two stories. Of One is a more physical one as Moses' day, although there are some physical ones in Messiah's day too. Messiah has a little bit more on the uh, spiritual form. Uh, I didn't cover all the plagues. Obviously, there's, there's the three left to do. Uh, clearly, obvious one of the death of firstborn. But uh, I didn't discuss the darkness. I didn't discuss the locusts uh, as far as what's happen- what happens later on. But even those technically are actually show from Messiah's time too uh, with the whole when he dies and the sky turns dark and earthquakes and such. We also have another similarity of the locust when Messiah compared himself to a green tree and says, hey, Look what they do with the green tree. You know, wait, this get a hold of you who, don't, who, who isn't righteous. So even he has, has, has a comparison between uh, the, the locusts as far as consuming and destroying it and killing off. So there's a lot, of, a lot of similarities which we would expect to see. So back when we started out, an hour and 20 minutes ago it was, um, it was brought up, what would the third exodus look like? Well, we don't know for certain. But we know what the first one looked like. As far as very physical, like plagues, miserable, terrible, difficult things. What would the second one look like? Which is more of a spiritual-based concept of internalizing what these plagues meant externally. The plagues were external one. The spiritual ones were internal one, was inside of you. The third one, I suspect, would be some, some mixture thereof. But probably more heavily based on the prophets' stories, the prophets and, and, and Revelation story probably more heavily leading toward the, the Moses story versus Messiah's story as far as the significance of it and how quick that has to be. But like Messiah's story, quick to respond is really valuable without the complaints. Quick 
to respond. That's really important. Um, as when they were told to flee, they fled. When they were told to put stuff away, put it away. When they were to hide, hide. Do what you're told and do it quickly. Don't wait. Don't dilly dally. Don't say, well, but you know, him and ha, but, I, but I'm comfortable here, like Lot's wife and such. Don't want to do that. So we know whatever the third axis will be like. Quick to respond. And maybe a mixture of both difficult times as well as spiritually uplifting times. And I can't say which one's more dumb than the other. God seems to view people a little different. Let's see. Oh, right. Jeff has a, 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 a seven plagues of relations. He has, it's written on our, our webpage as far as what you can what you go through through some of those things as well. Um, the, 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 the stuff that we've covered in the past. So I'm inclined to think it's more of a physical one in many ways, but there will be a lot of spiritual things going on too. Book of Revelation. Uh, so this is a, this is an important uh, topic to understand and remember, and this is probably the most one of the most of the Noah story, one of the most famous worldwide told stories about our God. He is famous for this one as well as famous meaning even in secular you know non-religious groups they still hear of this they still hear the exodus still hear about noah they they know that it's so imperviated to our culture and, and and our nations throughout the globe that they're still oh yeah i heard about that one once yeah they still know that name that not the name as far as the name of god but they know the story about him his identity and in, in his, in his history his his, his hallmark calling cards and so these are important things to pay attention to and listen to um to not to not uh, uh, ignore as far as how, how this how this process is supposed to work because I do believe there will be a third excess. I don't know when. It could be next year, could be next decade, could be next millennia. I have no idea. I'm not gonna you know, you're not gonna gonna argue which one it happens to be because I don't know. But I watch out and pay attention to because either way, whether it's my lifetime or yours or somebody else's, I still want to be quick to respond. I don't want to dilly dally your waiter, him and haw, and say, "Well, is this really him? Is this you know some party trick thing going on? Is this?" Just... I don't want him to be that way. Quick to respond, observant, pay attention to, and be willing to do it wherever he leads. Go. It doesn't matter if I'm an old man or a young baby. Well, I'm not a baby anymore; it's too late. <laughs> I'm an old man someday. I don't know. It makes a difference, regardless of what the loss or what the gains. Quick to respond and follow him. And by the way, as mentioned before, what Tammy pointed out. Without complaining, we know the Torah. God really doesn't like complainers. And who does? How many of you liked your kids complaining over and over and over again when you're raising them? Yeah, it wasn't the most pleasant experience, was it? Yeah, don't be like that. <laughs> Grow up. Okay. Any comments or questions about this Torah portion? I don't have time to go through anything else. So, any, any issues, questions, or things you say, what about this? What about that? We'll just ask them now, or else we're going to close it up. Uh, uh, Rose here. Go ahead. I have a huge favor to ask of Jeff. Uh-oh. Uh oh. Well, uh, he's guilty. He did a he did an overview uh, one time of Deuteronomy. I think it was. Yes, he did a couple of times. I want to leave my Bible to uh, my daughter, and I was wondering if he could uh, give me an overview of of the first five books. Uh, you know, each book so I could put it in each book. So when I die and she opens it up and maybe don't want to read it, she might get an overview. Does that sound like too much? 
So when you're I saying, um, saying kind of like an introduction to each of the books of the Torah, is that what you're referring to? Yeah, you, uh, you, you gave me a, in Deuteronomy, you, you did a, a beautiful little overview of the scriptures. Yeah. Oh, I see. Okay, yes. Yeah, and, you, and it kind of uh, said what each one uh, was about. Like, don't forget the Lord your God. Okay, the gotcha. Right. Connected the, to the Ten Commandments. Yeah. All right. I'll just and make a note. So what I want to do is I want to be able to put a little paper in each book so that when I leave this Bible to them, uh, you know, maybe they'll see that and, and, and read it. <laughs> okay. I have, I have uh, my Bible is really marked up with a lot of good notes that I've taken over the years, but I just thought an overview for each book would be a little more encouraging to, for them to read it. The Cliff's Notes version. <laughs> All right. <laughs> That's a good idea. Any comments or questions? Things you, Thank you. Of course, or anything else you're going to share with us. All right, we'll close with a prayer then. Almighty God, our great Father, thank you. Thank you for our, our Shabbat. Thank you for our day of rest. We ask you to bless us and keep us safe and help us to continue to, to obey you. And the world around us, Father, may it fall apart, may it not fall apart, to know to trust you. It, it doesn't really matter how it turns out. Because we know that how the ending is, is the important component. How we get there, Father, is in your hands. May you bless us and bless our families and our loved ones that we listen to your voice and to follow you wherever you lead us. To trust you, Father, for you are trustworthy. You are far more trustworthy than anything we can else imagine. Father, help us to mimic you, to be trustworthy servants to you, that you may trust us to follow you. To know that whether it is 600,000 or two, the Exodus, Father, the, the return of your people is worth something to you and is valuable to you and you will hold true to your promise, to your words. We, grant, we, we ask you will grant us peace and grant us wisdom to be encouraging to one another, to be kind to one another, to be heals where we can heal and, and strive and work through our difficulties as they come. For you are our God and we are your people. We ask your blessing, Father, and praise you and glorify you in Yeshua's name. Amen. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at Hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. Hallel.info. Hallel.info.